Due to a virtually unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court, we learned a couple of days ago that religious fanatic Samuel Alito wrote an opinion that concludes Roe and Casey must be overruled, essentially ending the right to bodily autonomy for over half of the people in this country. The decision is reckless, arrogant, and deeply cruel. Uh, Read it at your peril. Although the Washington Post uh, has an annotated version, which you uh, should actually check out if you uh, can stomach it. Right out of the gate, Alito mentions that abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Who fucking cares? There are plenty of unenumerated rights that Americans enjoy. But if he's so concerned about that, maybe he should tell his fellow Republican activists in the Senate that the filibuster and the number of Supreme Court justices aren't mentioned in the Constitution either. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, writes Alito with a deliberate allusion to Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka and its repudiation of Plessy v. Ferguson. In other words, he's equating Roe with Plessy, the Supreme Court case that codified the racist separate but equal policy. Quote, far from being about a national settlement of the abortion issue, he continues, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. So, Alito was implying that Roe has been the cause of the country's split over abortion rights, not the fact that 30% of Americans, based solely on their own religious beliefs, will stop at nothing, including murder in some instances, to prevent tens of millions of, of Americans from exercising their right to bodily autonomy. Roger Taney, architect of one of the most disastrous decisions in Supreme Court history, believed that his ruling in Dred Scott would permanently settle the question of slavery and ease tensions between North and South. Similarly, Alito seems to believe that overturning Roe and Casey will settle the question of abortion once and for all, while ending the debate and healing divisions over the issue. It's important to remember, however, that the Dred Scott decision brought this country several several steps closer to the Civil War. Meanwhile, Chief Justice John Roberts wants the FBI to investigate the leak. On the other hand, Roberts seems not to be the slightest bit interested in finding answers to the following questions. Did Clarence Thomas know about or was he involved with his wife's planning of the January 6th insurrection? Why was Thomas the only justice to descend from SCOTUS's rejection of Donald's bid to block the release of some presidential records to the January 6th committee? Brett Kavanaugh was credibly accused of sexual assault by at least three women. Are any of those allegations true? Who paid off Kavanaugh's $200,000 credit card debt, his $92,000 country club fee, and the $245,000 mortgage on his house? Did Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch commit perjury during their confirmation hearings? Yes, they did. There are many other questions Roberts would want answered if he truly cared about the legitimacy of his court, but he only cares about the appearance of the court's legitimacy. And it isn't the leak that threatens that. It's Roberts' own activism, his long-standing assault on voting rights, his anti-democratic rulings on campaign finance like Citizens United, his utterly stupid decision to allow Alito, of all people, to write this latest opinion. 
Roberts owns all of this. In the nearly two and a half centuries of of its existence, the American Supreme Court has been one of the most anti-democratic forces in our history. And this court is among the worst, untethered from the need to serve anything but their own racist and misogynistic fanaticism, and perhaps buoyed by the knowledge that elected Republicans have gamed the system sufficiently to grab minority power in perpetuity, there is currently nothing stopping them. Buckle up. Things are going to get so much fucking worse. Today, I'm extremely grateful to welcome as my guest, Michigan State Senator and um, a rarity among elected Democrats, (laughs) it would seem, a passionate defender of our democratic values, uh, State Senator Mallory McMorrow. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Mary. Appreciate it. Well, you know, I think um, the more we hear from Democrats like you, elected Democrats from you, the better, uh, because I think you have a thing or two to teach us about uh, how we need to be fighting this fight. So I want to start with this this question. Um, what is it, do you think, that is making it difficult, if not impossible, for our fellow Democrats to understand the severity, the seriousness of what's at stake? And if you could you know, put that in the context of what you were responding to in your brilliant floor speech uh, last week, which of course we'll speak about in more detail later. Sure, I, and and I don't know that it's the lack of understanding. So, so here in Michigan, Michigan is the epicenter of all of this. It was the focus of all of the lies about the 2020 election that is still being relitigated by some a few years later. Um, and while the speech was taking off last week in Michigan, the Michigan GOP held their nominating convention and nominated two far-right conspiracy theory Trump-backed candidates for Secretary of State and Attorney General. Uh, so it's it's still, and I think those of us in Michigan, we viscerally understand that if we don't fight back, this very well may be the last fair election we have in Michigan. We were so close in 2020 to, you know, the legislature appointing alternate electors and overturning an election. So I do think there's, there's a real, there's an understanding of what's at stake, but I don't know who told me this, this metaphor, but I really liked it. It's like Democrats and Republicans are playing a game of checkers and Democrats are still trying to play by the rules and Republicans have burned the house down. And, (laughs) you know, I, I think, I think yeah. we, Democrats, we, we, I, I ran for office because I love this state and this country and our system of democracy. And I think we, we really fundamentally believe in it and want it to work. And it's hard to acknowledge that these are not normal times. Uh, so, so I, I, I think there's an understanding. It's just, what do we do with that information that we have? And I, I do think it's extremely important that these these battles also be be fought at the state level. Uh, you know, I, I obviously it would be motivating to the base if more 
um, members of Congress uh, fought this way. I, I believe that Representative Jamie Raskin is doing uh, a really good job of upping the ante in, in terms of that. But, uh, you know, as, as you've said, this, this next uh, fight is going to be won or lost at the state level. So that's why I think on the one hand, it was so, um, I mean, gratifying is an understatement, but I'll go with that, uh, to hear you um, unequivocally push back and set the record straight. But also, I think the, one of the main reasons that, that your, your speech resonated and took off was because we're craving, we're starving for that kind of fight uh, from any Democrats. And it seems that um, what, you know, I guess we could, we could argue whether or not there's, there's a deep enough understanding in certain uh, among all Democrats or most Democrats, but the point remains that, that we are in uncharted ter territory and you are actually one of the few people I've heard say explicitly that it's, you know, 2022, we win or we lose. And we, if we lose, we're, it's lost. Yeah. So do you, do you think that one of the problems here, and I'm thinking specifically about Michigan, but this is a broader issue, of course, is a lack of accountability. Um, I'm thinking specifically about the, uh, the fact that the alleged kidnappers yeah. uh, were found not guilty. I mean, do you think that on the one hand demoralizes the base and on the other hand in, in, um, in, empowers uh, and emboldens uh, the the right? Yeah, it does. I mean, this is a concerted effort to wear people down so they quit. I mean, we've seen right. this with election officials, public health officials, you know, people who didn't run for office uh, who have been bullied and threatened and, and are quitting and are quitting in record numbers. And here in Michigan, so, so the day that we learned about the the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, which also included, by the way, a plot to take the Capitol, burn the building down, and carry out public executions of people like me on the Capitol steps, um, we learned about that while we were sitting in Senate session, so watching a streaming on on my laptop on the floor, and right after session. Uh, Majority Leader Mike Shirky, Republican, left our chamber and walked to the front of the Capitol to join a rally with the same groups that had organized our April 30th, 2020 protest, which had armed gunmen in the Capitol and, and encouraged them to keep going. There is a willingness with this current Republican Party to align themselves with anti-government extremists, with QAnon conspiracy theorists. And, and it, that is... That is where we are right now. And that that's what's happening in Michigan. So, you know, I know that this speech felt like a moment, but this wasn't a moment. This has been right. building for years. Well, you're also one of the few people who said that explicitly. You know, I, I get the sense from a lot of Democrats. And, and listen, I, I want to be really clear here. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that I'm a Democrat. Um, and I am not, I sort of make it a policy not to, not to uh, criticize the Democratic Party or the Biden administration on policy issues, because imagine the horrors if for some awful reason Joe Biden hadn't won in 2020. Yeah. Imagine where yeah. we would be now. So 
I am not splitting hairs about that. I'm I'm talking about strategy, and I'm talking about um, helping the Democratic Party uh, and those in leadership who can actually do something about this to understand the enormity of what we're facing. So, um, you know, I it does seem for a lot of Democrats either that they're completely surprised by this trend, as if it's just started over the last four years, or they're still stuck in this cycle of thinking that Republicans are their colleagues. Is is the um, Michigan State Senate similar in your view to uh, the United States Senate in terms of the divide and the impossibility of bipartisanship and the the sense that I certainly get that that collegiality is 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 an impossibility at this point. Yeah, it's 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 never been this bad. And and I say that in talking to other colleagues, I, I only got elected in 2018, so I haven't been doing right. this that long, but I've introduced 40 bills in my three and a half years. Not one has ever gotten a hearing. Um, I, I flipped a Republican district in 2018 when right. I ran for the first time. Um, but one of the things that, you know, and again, I go back to, I believe as a Democrat, and I feel like so many Democrats fundamentally believe in the system. And it's really hard to let it go because the system isn't working now. This yeah. doesn't work. And and being able to step out of that, and I do believe Democrats have policies that are going to help a lot of people. But if we can't break through the noise and the manufactured outrage about critical race theory and, and slavery and um, you know, whether or not a fifth grader wants to play soccer on a team with her friends, if it, you know, if it yeah. matches her gender identity. I get calls in my office and I currently represent, you know, a, a pretty evenly split district from constituents who you can hear it in their voice. They, they are really angry and afraid, particularly on this issue of trans kids playing sports. Yeah. And Part of the reason that I'm so angry is recognizing that people like Lana Tice, my colleague who wrote the fundraising email about me, it's not only targeting LGBTQ kids, it's taking advantage of women like my constituent who is now yeah. so angry and hateful um, and and livid about the idea that a kid might want to play soccer that she doesn't even notice that there aren't plans to help her in her everyday life on, right. you know, healthcare costs and the fact that our state is one of the oldest states in the country. And what does that mean for people who want to retire? Or if you can't sell it, all of the things aren't being addressed and it, it affects everybody. And that's what I was hoping to do kind of messaging wise is, you know, mm -hmm. blunt this because it's a lie and it's a distraction and they're, they don't care about you either. They, yeah. they just care about power and holding on to it at all costs. Absolutely. I, there's so much there <laughs> that I want to get to. So let's see how to, um, uh, well, let's start with uh, the fear. Yeah, It does seem that on the right, there's rage. Uh, it, it's sometimes incoherent rage, but it's all based on fear, yeah. which is why we get people responding like your, your constituent to the um, quite honestly, inhumane um, attitudes on the right towards LGBTQ and particularly trans children. Um, and it's why we see uh, voters in Virginia kind of sucked into this lie 
yeah. this racist lie about critical race theory, but because Democrats seem to think that all they need to do is talk about policy, they don't need to push back, and we see what happens. We see that Virginia now has a, um, well, forgive me, I hate this term, but a Trumpist. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'm getting used to it, but yeah. well, I mean, I'm not really getting used to it. I, I just mean that I, I understand yeah, yeah. that it's really the only thing we can call it at this point. Um, so, you know, by not pushing back, we're seeding ground. It's kind of like what's happening on Twitter. Yeah. Elon Musk hasn't even bought yet. And Democrats are like, I'm out. Well, no, <laughs> we have to stop seeding territory. And the other thing, uh, I think of every time somebody like you stands up, is like that when Michelle Obama said, we go high, she didn't mean be a doormat. Right. Exactly. I, well, I mean, I don't know what she meant, but I always took it as don't be them, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, but fight with righteousness because we are on the right side of things. So how do you um, convey to your voters uh, both of those things simultaneously? You know, how do you help them sift through uh, the propaganda yeah. which is, as you said, purely designed to distract them by provoking fear of the other and also help them understand that their lives are actually getting worse under the people they keep reelecting. Yeah, it is. It was really interesting when I ran for office for the first time and I was in territory that Democrats had never won. Um, And I would talk to people on their doorsteps and spend a lot of time and just talk about your family, talk about my family, uh, why, why I'm doing this. And I had a not insignificant number of people who said, I voted for Donald Trump because he's different and says it like it is. And I voted for, I'm going to vote for you for the same reason. And, you know, I, I it's for me, I always I'm tell sorry, people, that like pulls me up because isn't it like it is, I had a hard time with it because I, so I ran for office for the first time after the 2016 election And there was a video that went viral of students, kids chanting, build that wall at a Latina student. And people started sending it to me and they're like, do you know about this? And that was my polling place. So that was Royal Oak Middle School where I stood, you know, in the gym a few days earlier to vote for, for Hillary Clinton. Um, And that broke me because that sent me the message years ago that this has unleashed the acceptability of just hatred. And it was kids, kids who I'm sure heard it from their parents, heard it on TV. Um, So that's when I Googled how to run for office and went through the steps to to run. Um, But that that was something that I was really trying to process is why are people responding in the same way to to Donald Trump and to me? Um, And what I try to tell my staff and people all the time is, is talk like you would talk to your friends at a bar. Because I think we have the right policies. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be a Democrat otherwise. But that's not how people vote or take action. You vote on an emotional level. You vote for somebody who you feel like you can trust. I had people tell me, I might not agree with all of your policy issues, but I feel like you're honest with me. Like, you're going to tell me straight how it is. Um, so I, re- communication is super important to me. I hold a weekly live stream 
talking about bills that move through the Senate and what it means. And I try to break it down so it's not this like very abstract thing that happens far away from you. Talk about it in everyday real ways and, and make it allow people to participate in the way that they want to instead of, you know, lecturing sometimes, which I feel like is, is what we Democrats like yeah. to do. I love data and research and policy papers, but right. this is my job now and I have time to do that. If you right. work in a restaurant and you have kids, you don't have time for that. And and, yeah. and we need people to want to participate and to feel like they matter and aren't being talked down to. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, another analogy, uh, Democrats bring X to a bazooka fight. Um, and my, my friend David Rothkopf said, Democrats bring a 30-page white paper <laughs> to a bazooka totally. fight. And it's true. Uh, but you said something that it's just fascinating. Um, so basically what you and Donald have in common, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be the last thing, the only thing you have in common is you tell it like it is. So people like that, even yeah. if what you're saying is, is openly racist, not you, him, obviously. So, you know, as long as you're being straight, whatever it is that people find that acceptable. Okay, very odd, but um, maybe it's because of the uh, stereotypes that there are out there about politicians. Fine. Yeah. However, so much of what you're combating right now is based on, forget about the fact that Donald lied like 500,000 times in four years, right? The stuff you're combating is all based on what CRT is not taught anywhere in American yeah. public schools. You know, uh, Trans children are not trying to take over. In fact, I don't remember. I think it's Utah. That entire thing, that anti-trans uh, children bill, was to get to keep one child one. from participating <laughs> in schools and not college, just no. you know, gr uh, grade school. So that's that's one of the things that's so that that makes it so amorphous. How do you fight that? when um, it's all sold as, you know, the truth and the truth is they're out to get you. Yeah. I, you know, it is. So we had, we had Christopher Rufo who was profiled in the New York times last week. He is a right-wing blogger, um, lives in New York, works for the Manhattan Institute, but has taken credit for creating the fervor around CRT, the panic. Um, and he was invited by Lana Tice, who chairs education, who's the woman who sent out the fundraising email about me, mm -hmm. invited to testify in our education committee six months ago and was asked by one of my Democratic colleagues, you know, is this you? Are you the person called out in this article creating the fear around CRT? And he said, with no hesitation, yes. So they're, they're just saying they're telling you. And in the profile, you know, he talks about how LGBTQ issues are much more potent because it's about sexuality and it's about taking away innocence from kids. And that is the fear you're playing into, which I, I listened to an interview with my colleague, the, the one who attacked me, and I think she fundamentally believes it. And it is that outward manipulation. So I think that that is, we have to be able to just blunt, blunt forcefully call out that it is hate and that it is taking advantage of you. You know, somebody who is not parent of a trans kid 
Right. It is taking advantage of you. And I, I think that's how we can get to a place where as soon as we're debating with somebody on what CRT is or where it's taught or where it's not taught, we've, we've lost yeah. because then we're validating the premise of the argument instead yes. of, you know, I've gotten this question a lot over the past weeks, particularly about LGBTQ issues. You know, what would you say to parents who don't want um, sexual attraction and, and trans issues taught to kindergartners? It's not happening. And, you know, the second you get into the debate on when it should be taught and what's in a curriculum, we, we've lost. And yeah. they controlled the definition of, quote unquote, parental rights. So I talked to, to some Democrats who say, well, I don't want to fight against parental rights. We do believe in parental rights. It's like, but, but they've defined what that means. Right. And we have to take that definition back. We have to redefine it. Like, we love our families and our communities. There's a reason that I was very intentional about talking about, I grew up Christian and Catholic. Like, yeah, you don't get to own that. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, that is what that is a, a serious problem. Uh, we always seem to be reactive on our side of things um, and engaging the debate at a level beyond which it never should have gotten. You know, right. so it we shouldn't be defining critical race theory. Right. Uh, we should be saying and it, it actually blows my mind that that the Virginia gubernatorial campaign went by without anybody pointing out the fact that Glenn Youngkin is a racist. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, right. we're talking about, and, well, the, the, uh, the Democrats didn't even talk about the issue at all, but you know, at the very least they could have said, no, it's not taught, but they didn't, they didn't even do that. But the real, the real response would have been, he's a racist. Uh, just as with the LGBTQ, it's all about, um, the prejudicial notion, or it's actually, it's tactic. Uh, anything LGBTQ automatically gets sexualized. Right. And instead of saying, well, then if we can't talk about couples, then we can't uh, talk about any couples because that implicit, implicit in that is the idea that there's sex. Yeah. You know, so, but we don't do that either. Um, so, you you just uh, alluded to this. You you spoke from your position of privilege. Yeah. Um, as a white Christian, married, suburban mom, um, and that made me think of two things. Uh, most obviously, that one of the reasons we have been in this situation in this country forever is because dominant groups tend not to understand the importance of allyship. So why do you think that that's so, it shouldn't be, right? I mean, that what's the point of having privilege right. if you can't use it in that way? And so on the one hand, what inspired you? Because you said it twice, it was very powerful. But it, again, it was also like, why doesn't anybody else freaking do this? Yeah, well, and, and I, I'll be the first to say, I haven't talked a lot about you know, my, my faith and upbringing, um, partially for, for fear of the way that faith is used in politics. Like when you fill yeah. out an endorsement form from a group asking for them to support you, it's usually one line. It's like religion blank. Yeah. And I've always felt like if I put Catholic, then they're going to ask, well, what parish do you go to? And are you there every week? And it, 
it puts me into sort of the performative nonsense that I don't agree with anyway. And the reality is we had a complicated relationship with our church, but my mom led from a place of service and values and, you know, the teachings of faith. So I think reclaiming that was important, but what we saw in, in my district and places like mine in 2018 was the election of Donald Trump led so many privileged women to get active for the first time, maybe ever. You know, I talked to a lot of women in in my area who said they didn't vote consistently, or some women said they voted with their husbands for the benefit of their family. Um, And we weren't going to do that anymore. And we organized like crazy. We started indivisible groups. We had marches. We got, you know, it was me, Alyssa Slotkin, Haley Stevens, you know, Gretchen Whitmer, Dana Nessel all ran in the same year. And we can do that again. And we have to do it again. So, And part of the reason that I wanted to really highlight who I am, especially as a white suburban mom, is that moms have had to deal with a lot over the past few years with school closures, the pandemic, balancing work and life and school. And, And we saw what happened in Virginia is taking advantage of mom's very real frustration And I think Democrats have to acknowledge that and thank moms and just say, you have been through a lot. I had a baby during COVID. So, you know, I get it. (laughs) Trying to find childcare and have a job during all this has been hard. So I think giving moms and people like me space to say, it has been hard, but we have to fight now. You know, I know you're tired. I'm tired. We cannot just sit back and let it happen because that is how Donald Trump got elected in the first place was white women. Yeah. And it's happening again. Like we can't just do it one cycle and then sit back and get comfortable again. We have to get uncomfortable and and stand up for people instead of expecting that marginalized communities always have to defend their own right to exist. And that's a huge frustration. If, if only the Democrats uh, empowered its base the way the Republicans empowers it, especially given the fact that the Democratic base is just, you know, essentially, not uh, essentially, but largely, uh, Black women who uh, keep saving American democracy in the Republican base is a bunch of white supremacist, fascist, uh, misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, the the fact that that we have to use the same word to describe these incredibly different uh, groups is is kind of appalling. Um, But it, it, it does matter, and you know, I, I just want to get back to something you said because I, I'm talking to friends about the ways in which Democrats need to um, reclaim certain concepts, uh, patriotism, mm-hmm. the flag. You know, and these are things that honestly that I'm very uncomfortable with because of how the right has perverted them. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's not patriotism anymore; it's jingoism. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm very nervous around those words, but it's true. I mean, we want American democracy to survive and, and they don't. So I'm not really sure what may, why there's any, you know, debate about who's more patriotic. But the Christianity, um, I'm very uh, loath, honestly, to have those conversations uh, because, yeah. again, uh, there should be a separation of, between church and state, although that looks like it's coming to an end thanks to this illegitimate Supreme Court. Um, but how do you, you know, you can't avoid it because everything we're talking about almost, whether it's um, a women's right to choose or 
uh, to raise a family in the way uh, people see fit, whether yep. it's LGBTQ. On the right, it is all stemming from their idea about what Christianity is. So it's, you know, it's not a governmental argument they're using. It's a religious one. Yeah. So I do think in, um, you know, if, if it were to be, nobody would be talking about what religion they are, if there are any, who cares, it's nobody's business. But unfortunately, that's not the America we live in right now. Um, so to, to claim that in a way, uh, in the way you did, I think helps diffuse this idea that it's a monolith and that, um, you know, all white Christian women think the same way because, you know, it's not just white women who, who elected Donald, it's white Christian women yep. <laughs> who elected exactly. Donald. A lot right? of people are me, <laughs> except yeah. not me. <laughs> right, exactly. So how do, how, do you think that's a that's been effective? Uh, you, you've effectively been able to help people understand that um, you know Christian doesn't doesn't have to mean um, what the right keeps um, claiming it means. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Um, and obviously, it's only been a, a week or so, so we'll see long term <laughs> if, if a lot of other people. It seems longer. It, it feels like forever. You know, my mom, I've talked to my mom a lot over the past week and she said, Mal, it's not going to mean anything if a bunch of people watch your speech, if they just go back at, right. and do nothing. Absolutely. Um, so that's now what I'm trying to do is how do we organize and how do we give people space and, and, and help show what that action means. But I do think it's important because of how Christianity and faith has been weaponized. You know, yeah. it comes across. So, so Lana Tice's Twitter bio before she deleted her Twitter page the, the bio was Christian wife. That was the definition. And that somehow gives her authority to target gay and trans and, you know, ban the teaching of the 1619 project or, you know, anything that's going to make white kids feel bad about the fact that our country's history is, is very dark and problematic when it comes to slavery and relation race relationships. It still is. Yeah. Um, and I, I really, it, that has gone on for too long. I am tired of seeing that weaponized to hurt people. And I'm also very cognizant, you know, part of the reason that I'm not super active in a church is that Catholic church literally has a dark history of grooming and pedophilia right. and still does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've been talking really openly about whatever faith means to you, it can be used as a really powerful tool of, of hope and it can be a really horrible weapon. And it's up to us to decide how that gets used. And if if we see it being used in a way that is counter to what we believe, it's, it's our job to stand up in it and for it. Otherwise, it is going to be used to, to hurt people. Um, unsurprisingly, when I ran for office for the first time, my last name is McMorrow and I have red hair and I went to Notre Dame. A lot of people's first <laughs> is, how do you feel about abortion? Right? And like, that's a conversation that I feel like people shy away from. I'm happy to have that conversation and talk about why it's so important that we all, there, there is common ground in, for example, wanting to reduce the number of abortions by providing contraception and education and giving women the, the power and authority to choose if and when to get pregnant and then make sure it's safe if it's available. Otherwise, we're going back to a time when Lysol is being sold and marketed as a contraceptive. 
And people are receptive to that. So I think owning your own identity and that, that is to say, I've been a little wary about seeing coverage saying, you know, my speech is a template because it can't be a template. My story is not your story. Everybody has a story, but I think we, we have to talk more openly about who we are and how we were raised and the fact that we love our families. We love our communities. We love our neighbors and not seeding that to people who are creating wedges and making us hate each other. Yeah. They, yeah. It's, it's very effective in that regard. <laughs> I have to say. It's really exhausting. And that is part of the problem. What um, seems to energize them enervates and demoralizes us. Yeah, it wears us out. And I, you know, I don't, I don't blame people, <laughs> I, no. especially talking with LGBTQ friends over the past few weeks. They're just like, we are so depleted. You know, I just want to retreat into a corner and, and not have, not go out into the world and just be called a pedophile every day. Like I get that yeah. to my core. And, and that's, again, part of the reason why I wanted to be so intentional about my identity, because that so that's okay you know if you're exhausted if you've been on the receiving end of these attacks you shouldn't have to stand up for yourself the, those of us who are not the ones being attacked need to stand up and take the hits um and and say that it's not going to work anymore um otherwise it's it's going to keep winning and they're going to keep doing it until it is you and and that, that's what they tried to do to me right i was the warning yeah. shot that if you stand up yeah. with the lgbtq community you're one of them right and that's not going to happen. They, they mess with the wrong mom. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm very glad they did. Because, well, there, the history of this country, I mean, I, this is my thought anyway. One of the reasons we continue to struggle with these issues, which should have been in our rearview mirror, uh, <laughs> is for two reasons. Uh, very basic reasons. We have never uh, grappled with, let alone atoned for, uh, the white supremacy, which continues to exist and which continues to um, benefit people like you and me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, white people have a really hard time uh, admitting that, uh, that their privilege is entirely unearned. I mean, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. Like, we can't give it away. But yeah. uh, not acknowledging it just perpetuates the problem. And the second issue is the utter lack of accountability. Um, and we see that at every single level from Donald on down. And it's been this way since Robert E. Lee, you know. Um, so and, and we see it with your awful colleague who I, I'm guessing that there have been absolutely no sanctions uh, yeah. against her for defaming you. Yeah. So. We we now have a situation in which. You know, marginalized groups continue to have to take the hits. They continue to have to re-litigate mm-hmm. the battles, you know, because what people seem to forget is just because uh, the Constitution confers rights doesn't mean, it, not the Constitution, sorry, the Supreme Court yeah. confers rights doesn't mean they guarantee them. You have, so, uh, and we see everything is, seem, they seem to want to do, undo everything. Yeah. So the least we can do is use our positions of privilege, our, uh, you know, the the uh, fact that we belong to dominant groups to, again, be allies. But the other thing that always seems to get lost, and I don't really like 
talking about it this way because it really shouldn't be the most important thing. But sometimes people, I guess, need need to feel self-interest in, in an issue, right? We never talk about what we lose yeah. by not being allies. And I'm thinking in particular about what happened to now, thankfully, Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson yes. in those hearings. It was awful. I mean, her treatment by the Republicans was just so disgraceful, it's impossible for me to put it into words. But what hurt even more was the lack of support. Did you experience that similarly? Thankfully, no. Um, And and again, I think it's, it's, I've got really supportive colleagues. Women in Michigan have gone through a lot over the past few years. So we, we have each other and we're a pretty close network. And um, that's been really wonderful. I I received not one phone call or text or message from any of my sitting Republican colleagues, not even when the email went out to say, hey, Um, and it's if we don't and one of the things that i try to do in my speech is the message that the right is trying to send right now is that you know basic understanding of history is going to make your white kid feel bad right and i think that we we have to make space to say history was not your fault it wasn't your fault it wasn't my fault but we all have a responsibility to write the next chapter and and that should be empowering not negative you know it shouldn't make us loathe the fact that, you know, I, I was born in a middle-class family and I have white skin and I'm, I'm never going to be discriminated against the way that, that some of my colleagues and friends are. Um, I've gotten really close with Senator Adam Ollier, who's a state Senator from Detroit, who, you know, he's around my age with young kids and he's black and just, he wears a neon vest every time he goes running. Cause he's like, otherwise I'm going to be perceived as a threat. I never have to think about that. Um, he told me in the wake of the shooting of Patrick Leoyo over in Grand Rapids, who was shot in the back of the head, a black man by a police officer, um, that he just went home and looked at his son and cried, you know, and, and not even for his son, but he said he realized he cried because he came home that day and every day he realizes he might not. And I'm never going to have to have those thoughts. Um, but for, for me, it is how do we empower people like me to realize privilege is that it's a privilege not right. something to feel bad about. It is, we have the ability to take the hits, to stand up and and to make it better in the future. I mean, that is the most empowering thing in the world to me. We can improve upon history. That's what the founding fathers wanted. It was a more perfect union, implying it's not perfect. It's going to get better, and but we have to work at that. And yeah. that's a really, really powerful message to counter what Republicans are doing, which is inspiring by fear. Fear is a really powerful motivator. And I get that people are tired, but just what, what an incredible opportunity to say, we can shape the next chapter. We and, just have to do it. Yeah. And, and putting that in the context of what the fight is about. Um, yes, obviously it's about all of these um, issues in terms of civil rights we've been talking about, but in the, in the broadest possible way. It's about democracy. Yeah. And what the last few years has reminded me in a kind of terrifying way is how much we take for granted. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe this will be an opportunity 
for people to start re-examining their relationships to democracy or even to you know, explicitly figure out what democracy actually even is, right? Um, it would be good if we all know what we're fighting for. But again, um, and I don't like calling them culture wars because that suggests that there are two equal sides to the battle. Right. Um, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that there should be a fight. LGBTQ people, Black people, if it, I mean, they should, there's no question in my mind that we're all equal or sh yeah. should be. So it's not a war in my view. And yet that does seem to um, take over the narrative. And I, I don't, there's not an answer to this question. And I'm just very curious though, what you think about it. Um, because I do think that, that Democrats need to grapple with this more. Why, why do you think that those things are so powerful on the one side and so difficult to combat on ours. You know, I think on the other side, the message is somebody else is responsible for your problems. And that's that's really powerful. Then you have somewhere to direct your anger and attention and that's really motivating. On our side, if we're trying to say, no, somebody else is not responsible for your problems. But if we are perceived as focusing too much on the issue of a minority group, by definition, there's fewer of them, then I think the fear is the people in the majority group are like, well, what are you doing for me? When that's really what I'm trying to, to message with the way that, that I spoke about it is, it affects all of us because your problems are not somebody else's fault. They're lying to you to make you believe that. And in doing that, the roads aren't getting any better. You you know, you can't afford your, your kids' school is falling apart and teachers are leaving and it is affecting you too. So I think that that, that at least in my watching of it is the fear of, well, we got to make sure that we're, we're addressing everybody's issues. And that's why let's talk about pocketbook issues in the economy. Of course. But if we don't blunt that and tell people very forcefully, they are taking advantage of you. They're manipulating you. They are lying to you. They don't care about you. Then we're never going to get there. And, and that kind of language also seems to be missing. It's, it's something, you know, we need to be polite or something. I, I don't know. But you're saying that not one of your Republican colleagues reached out to you. Mm -mm. Um, and we see this, uh, certainly in, in the House of Representatives. There seems to be absolutely no, um, no way for people on either side to reach out or have a civil conversation or agree or respectfully disagree even. So I don't know, I, I, I don't think this is ideal, but I do think that, that we are in this in this kind of crucial historical moment in which I think it is impossible and we need to acknowledge that and just put our uh, heads down and, and do what needs to be done. And if you'll forgive me for saying so, fuck the other side because they don't, you, they don't care. They do not care. You said this at the very beginning of this interview. They're all about raw power and hanging on to power by any means necessary. I'm paraphrasing. Sorry, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does seem to be the case that they see an opening here um, in the not too distant future. They will not, They well, actually now, they cannot win 
free and fair elections, right? Because they don't have the numbers on their side. So do you, do you think that that's, that's a, a valid point to say at this point, you know, they are anti-democratic, counter-majoritarian, uh, pro-autocratic. We cannot, um, you cannot make common cause with these people because then you're again, ceding ground and the ground we're then ceding is democracy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And, and I'm, especially given my constituents, I, I try to really be intentional about, I think when Democrats say, well, Republicans are anti-democratic, then, then my constituents hear them. They, they hear like, oh, you think I'm an anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. And I really try to separate. It's, it's no, this Republican party. Yes. I would love if the Republican party was full of more people like Peter Meyer, congressman from the West side of our state, also right. happens to have red hair. Maybe there's just something to, to those of us who have red hair. Um, or Mitt well, Romney. Like, 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 people people where we could debate, right? Yes. But yes. we're not even there right now. So the choice is, do you want people who want the government to work or do you want to destroy it? And it's not even, you know, because I think if we can get out of the Democrats versus Republicans, because then people who have been lifelong Republicans, who maybe aren't this Republican party. I mean, they take personal offense to it. And that's why, like, I didn't yeah. mention Democrats and Republicans in my speech because it's, it's not people. Right. It's right. this current party right. and they need to be out of office. And if they get replaced with a bunch of moderate Republicans, well then great. Like let's get back to boring politics and working together and debating tax policy and not yeah. fear mongering and, and hatred. So, that, right. so the answer is yes, but also I think we have to message it very carefully so people don't, close their ears and, and not hear it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. And, and when I say Republicans, I do mean elected Republicans. I do mean this Republican yeah. party, this Republican leadership. Uh, and that is a distinction that needs to be made at every opportunity. Every Tuesday night, I also, I do a strategy session with a panel and, and I just started, I don't know, spontaneously came up with this idea. Democrats need to get better bumper stickers. You know, we need to trade in those 30 page white, white uh, papers for bumper stickers. And I think that would be part of it. You know, vote for just democracy, not fascism or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, Alyssa yeah. Brogan brings that up. Somebody walked up to her and said, you know, what's your hat, right? And it's like the, what's your make America great again? Because right. it's the catchphrase. Um, and she, your answer is too long. I mean, she's identified right. as, we don't have a hat. We don't have That's a bumper right. sticker. That's right. Yeah, I think it should be, you know, don't vote for fascists. Yeah. I'd rather be woke than fascist. I mean, running with with hate won't win. People seem to resonate with it. It's pretty straightforward. Right. It is. It is. So, uh, you know, I have one more question. I, I so appreciate your time. Um, and, and I know you have, have to go, but we live in dark times. Uh, and the necessity for your speech uh, is a perfect example of that um, because of what you, the hate you were responding to. So I like to ask people um, what gives them hope and how, what gives you hope? And how do you hang on to it during these very difficult times? I mean, running for office gave me hope. And my daughter gives me hope. She was just laughing hysterically on Monday evening, like in the bath, had no idea what was going on. And and she's <laughs> just a riot of a tiny little person. And But when I ran for the first time, just knocking on all these doors, I met so many people who I would never have met otherwise, right. who are live completely different lives than I do. I represent, you know, a, a community that has a lot of Indian American immigrants. I got a lot of samosas, like people just invite me in to have dinner oh, and it was samosas. delicious. <laughs> and like constantly coming back to that. And that's what I thought in 2018 is even if I lose, this was a phenomenal experience. And it's that simple. Like people are great. We just need to get 
off of our screens and talk to each other more. And that gives me a lot of hope. Great. Um, and before we wrap up, I just, uh, how can people find you on Twitter or whatever social media you're on? And I know uh, you're up for re-election when next year? Or? This year. Oh, this year, right, of course. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, just quick, just quickly, because I know it's Michigan and it's different for everybody, but um, did your district get um, merged in with another one? It did, yeah. We had redistricting. We have an independent commission for the first time. So uh, our districts are fair on a partisan basis in Michigan. Okay. It's exciting. So my district has changed. But we have an opportunity for the first time in my lifetime, my entire life, to have a Democratic Senate uh, to work with the governor, which is really exciting. Okay, so it's even more important that people know how to find you, how to, how to uh, donate to your uh, campaign, how to volunteer. So if you could... Absolutely. So I am on Twitter at Mallory McMorrow, um, and I am uh, helping support our entire Senate Democratic Caucus. So there's a link on my Twitter page to help flip the Senate, save democracy, because it's all going to come down to Michigan. It, it really is. Um, State Senator Mallory McMorrow, I, it is such a pleasure. I'm really grateful you were able to come by. And if your speech wasn't a template, it was certainly an inspiration. So uh, I and many, many other people are deeply grateful to you for your words, for your work, for your passion, and uh, for caring about democracy. Uh, so thank you for everything. And good thank luck. You, thank you. All right. Take care. It's 2022, and it's time to take action to make sure you bring your life and learning to the next level. Let's make this your best year yet, and nothing is better for that than Blinkist. Blinkist is a powerful tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. It's time for you to try it. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, which is something I know quite a lot about, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or finished titles like Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, This is the Fire by Dom Lemon, and The Soul of America by John Meacham. With Blinkist, you can get through a whole stack of incredible titles on your next vacation or even during a long flight. With our democracy seemingly disappearing by the day, it's worth reminding ourselves what the country stands for. In John Meacham's The Soul of America, he looks at the foundational conflicts that have defined our morality as a nation and continue to dictate the terms of our political battles through to the present day. It shows us that even if it looks rough, we still can make it through. They've blinked thousands of titles in 27 categories, and it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Mary to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com slash Mary to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Again, that's Blinkist.com slash Mary, or look for the link in our show notes. So, uh, Oklahoma, 
is another in an increasingly long line of states that just uh, passed an egregious abortion ban. Six weeks. Six weeks. Uh, by the way, that's not six weeks from conception. That's six weeks from the last time a woman had her period, which means that almost nobody in that position has any idea they're pregnant. So this is where we're heading. This is why, for God's sakes, the Democrats need to do something about this illegitimate Supreme Court. I'm all for adding seats. And I don't just mean four, I mean like 14. We cannot sustain, well, 15 actually, because we need an odd number. It's unsustainable. Uh, and we just, we cannot live in this country in which some women have the rights of a full citizen and other women in other states don't. It's insupportable. It's unacceptable. So this needs to be a wake-up call. Uh, so the White House Correspondents' Dinner is this weekend. Not a fan, personally. I, I think uh, it's not the, the only example, but I guess it's the biggest example of the fact that you know, there there seems to be too much um, fraternization between the media and the people they're supposed to be covering objectively. So that's one problem I have. Uh, the second problem I have is uh, COVID. It's still a thing, guys. I mean, I know more people who have had co gotten COVID in the last two weeks than since at the beginning of COVID. Granted because I only uh, will be friends with sane people who care about other human beings. They're all vaccinated. And most of them have at least one, if not both booster shots. I have both, but you know, you can still get sick and you can still get really, really sick. So I don't understand. We saw a couple of weeks ago, there was another big event in Washington, like 90 people got COVID. Vice President Kamala Harris has COVID. We need to stop pretending that, um, the Republicans are right. And that's another issue in which we are we are using the Republican line that getting back to normal, whatever that means, is more important than keeping people safe. That somehow wearing a mask is too much of a burden, but it's perfectly cool to walk on a plane without a mask and, you know, get some immunocompromised person or some highly at-risk child sick with a deadly virus. Really tired of it. Um, Elon Musk is, has been in the news, you may have noticed. Um, there are two things that are really disturbing about the fact that uh, he wants to buy Twitter. One is the fact that any individual can do such a thing, and two, that any individual has enough money to do such a thing. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, he may not be able to. Yes, the board accepted his offer, but, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, he may not be able to get the financing or something may happen uh, that makes the deal impossible. I have no idea. But as I said earlier, um, as soon it was, as it was announced, and again, what was announced was the deal, not the closing of the deal. Democrats ran for the hills. I lost 10,000 Twitter followers in one day. We cannot keep seeding ground, especially to people like Elon Musk, who, by the way, is 
as much an enemy of democracy and free speech as anybody out there. Do not be fooled by him. And by the way, private companies don't have anything to do with the right to free speech. The First Amendment doesn't apply to them, so he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Anyway, uh, it's very frustrating. So Democrats, stand your ground, and I don't mean that in the hideous NRA way. I mean, stop ceding territory where we are organized, where we are working together, and we where we have established meaningful, vibrant communities to the people who want to burn everything down. So, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Mary Trump Show with me, Mary Trump. I'm really uh, grateful to my guest, State Senator from Michigan, Mallory McMorrow, for joining me. Um, I, uh, After I saw her uh, floor speech, I, I really wanted to talk to her because I knew, or I had the sense anyway, that uh, she had a lot to say. Uh, that went beyond that floor speech, and I was right. Uh, so I, I hope that other Democratic politicians follow her lead and take her example, and uh, that Democrats who are maybe running for the first time understand that you can run with that kind of passion and uh, be that blatantly pro-democracy uh, and win, and win people over. So uh, thank you, Senator McMorrow, for joining me today. Uh, remember, this show airs live every Thursday and on youtube.com slash Politicon, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I also, every Tuesday, have the Mary Trump Show strategy session where I have a, a panel of guests discuss the upcoming 2022 elections, what's at stake, and what we, Democrats on the ground can do to make sure that the Democrats hold and preferably increase their majorities in the Senate and the House. That is Tuesday, youtube.com slash Politicon, also at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can also just check the show notes uh, for those times and that uh, URL. Go to youtube.com slash Politicon and follow Politicon as well like the episode please and there's a bell on the youtube page that you can click and if you do you will be alerted every time a new episode of the show drops also if you have any questions for me please send them to mary at politicon.com i love hearing from you guys i'll get to as many of your questions as i can and you can listen to the podcast on apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen except Spotify. I haven't said that in a while, so I just wanted to remind you. And give us a five-star review because it really does help other people find the show. That's it for this week. Thank you again so much for being here. I will see you on next Tuesday. And in the meantime, please stay safe and be kind. <laughs>